my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Um, I'm so blessed by you. I, I come to church feel, feeling ministered to. A lot of pastors go to church and they pour out and they, they do the things that pastors do and they go home feeling burnt out and stressed out. And this morning, I just, I'm standing here as a pastor that is hopefully, Lord willing, going to pour out right now through the preaching of God's word. But I'm feeling filled up by you because each of you are bringing your gifts to the Lord and using them. And so thank you. What an amazing church family you are. I love you guys. This is an incredible place to be. And to see what God has done here over the years is incredible. In fact, I get the joy next Sunday. I won't be with you next Sunday. I'll be at a church in north, um, kind of the northeast area, Elmwood Evangelical Free Church. They're an older congregation that is going through some transition and some struggle. And they've, they've asked Park to pray for them and to consider how we may serve them in them kind of replanting, revitalizing, looking at how God would um, breathe some new life into them. And so I get the pleasure to go preach there and encourage them next week. And Mark, one of our elders, is going to be using his gift here to edify us and to preach here. And so it's just an amazing thing to be a part of this church body and to see what God is doing in our church and kind of the Twin Cities metro. And I just want to thank each of you because it's, it couldn't be done without you. And I stand up here this morning feeling encouraged and filled up. So thank you. We're going to get into God's word this morning as we continue through the book of Hebrews, our series, Jesus is Better. And so I'm going to ask that you stand as I read, follow along. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18 this morning. It's on page 1001 in the Pew Bible. Listen to the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, you made him a little low, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest." in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. God, we pray that you would speak now to us through your word. We hear so many different voices throughout the week, and here we have the voice of the living God. So God, would you speak? Would you reveal the truth to us? Would you open our eyes to see and savor Jesus the Christ? Pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. You may have a seat. This passage really fits well with kind of Ben's story there about suffering and and him being ever with us. Jesus is ever with us. That's the name of the title in the sermon this morning. Actually, I'd like to rewrite that title. I'd like you to cross that off in your bulletin and actually write, Jesus is a better God. Jesus is a better God. And that may sound heretical at first speech, at first hearing, but what I, what I think this passage is revealing for us is that God, our God, is the one and only true God. He's the only God, and in Jesus, we get to know this God, and we learn through Jesus, Jesus is God, and so therefore, he's a better God than the world has to offer. The world will throw us false gods, counterfeit gods, different religions will give us different gods, and culture will give us things to worship as God. And in Jesus, we see that our God, Yahweh, the one and only God, he is the only God who seeks his people. He's the only God who suffers what we suffer. He's the only God who truly saves and the only God who sanctifies. That means to change or to be to make something or someone holy. And so all the religions of the world, all of the, the pursuits of the world, they're, they're these little idols that we chase. They're little gods that we chase. And, and none of them seek us out. The other gods of the other religions of the world, lowercase g, gods of the other religions of the world, those gods don't seek us out. The other religions of the world have to seek their God out. Their gods are removed, they're high, they're lofty. Well, they're made with hands, they don't exist. But in their minds, they do exist, and they have to be sought out by his subjects. But in Christianity, in Jesus, in this passage, we see that God seeks us out. He comes to us. We see that God suffers in Jesus. We see the suffering servant here in this passage. We see that God does whatever necessary to save those he loves and that he sanctifies us, he sets us apart. Again, the other gods of the world, they don't, they don't suffer on behalf of their people. They don't do whatever is necessary to save their people. Their people have to work really hard and be really religious and be really devout and fulfill the five pillars and do whatever their religion ascribes them to do that they might be saved. I had a conversation with a Muslim a few months ago and a few years ago, actually, just at an apartment complex here in St. Louis Park, and, and he was d- just distraught because he had no assurance of salvation. He said, I'm trying to fulfill my religious duties the best I can, but I don't know if I die if I would be with my God. I don't know that. Because his God hasn't sought him out personally. His God hasn't suffered in his place. His God hasn't done whatever, whatever was necessary to save him. He's saying, you do whatever is necessary for you to be saved. 
The God of Christianity says, I will do what's necessary that you would be saved. And then he sets us apart. He sanctifies us. And that's really what we see here in this passage. That Jesus shows us that our God is the better God, that he is the one and only God, that he is Yahweh, the God above all gods. And so let's dig this apart and look into this. Our God seeks us out. It's a profound teaching of this passage. We just got through with the Christmas season, but if we can put ourselves back in the Christmas season for a minute and think about the incarnation. God became man. God walked among us. That's what this passage is teaching us, that Jesus, that that God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, seeks you and me out. He comes for us. He doesn't just sit up in the heavens and say, if you guys figured out, you could ascend up to me. You could learn some things about me. But he says, I know that you, you're not, you, you can't do it. You can't comprehend the holiness of God. You can't comprehend the way that God works. And so I'm going to seek my creation out. I am going to come to them. In Jesus, we see God coming to us. My very first year of youth ministry at Crown College, my, my youth professor said, here's the one thing I remember from that class. Meet them on their turf. In talking about youth ministry, meet them on their turf. And the thing was, go to their sports games. Go to where the students go. Hang out where they hang out. See them in their context. Go with them where they go so that you would get to know them, so that you would know what their lives are like. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. God has met us on our turf. He's transcendent. He's holy. He's other. That's what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 8a is all about. The transcendent holiness of God and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The first chapter of Hebrews, I mean, it's this glorious picture, right? He, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's holy, he is other, he is high. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So the first part of Hebrews here is showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's other than us. He is holy. He is transcendent. He is above. But now here in chapter 2, verses um, 8b through the end of the chapter, we're seeing that Jesus being the son of God, holy and other than us, now comes as the son of man, like us. In fact, Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man, not son of God. He referred to himself as son of man somewhere between 78 and 83 times. I studied and tried to figure out the exact number, and I couldn't nail it down. It depends on some translations and interpretations. But between 78 and 83 times, Jesus referred to himself as he was here on this earth, walking among his people. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. In the Jewish mind, they knew that that was a phrase used of the Messiah. So he's, he's starting to help them see that he, is, that he is this sent one of God, the Messiah. But also, they knew it as Son of Man. That's, that's people. He, in fact, quotes Psalm 8 here. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 8, and this is a psalm about the dominion of mankind, that God created us to rule and reign on the earth, and we screwed it up 
in Adam and Eve. And so Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, is identifying with you and with me. He's walking this earth. He's showing us that God is seeking us out. He identifies with us. Look at these passages here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. For he was a little, for a little while made lower than the angels. Jesus, though higher than the angels, that was the message last week. Matt told us that Jesus is a better messenger, right? He is higher than the angels. He is set apart above the angels. The angels worship Jesus. But for a little while, we see him made lower than the angels. Our God sought us out. Jesus seeks us out by humbling himself, putting himself, in fact, underneath the very creatures that he created to worship him. Amazing. Jesus seeks us out. He humbles himself. He's made lower for a while than the angels. He walked on this earth. He was dependent on his mother Mary to change his diaper. Think about that. He was. Jesus was dependent on his parents to teach him how to eat, to teach him how to walk. He crawled. The creator of the universe crawling on a dirty, dusty floor being picked up by his mother, having his diaper changed. It was probably cold or dusty or dirty. He, he was probably crying, not out of sin, but out of, what is happening right now, Mom? Put my diaper back on. <laughs> Jesus made a lower for a little while below the angels. Then look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. We'll come back to that. It says that this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus identifies with us. He calls us brothers and sisters. So we're sons and daughters of God. We sang about that, but biblically speaking, we are brothers and sisters of Jesus the Christ. He's, he's our big brother. He has our back. He is God seeking us out Jesus comes, he enters our family, and he, like a good brother, says, I'm here for you. How can I take care of you? Some of you may have big brothers. I have a big brother. We don't always think the best things about our bigger brothers, but Jesus is like the ultimate big brother. What you long for your big brother to be like, Jesus is that type of big brother. He is God seeking us out. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. God, in Jesus, comes from heaven, embraces flesh and blood. He partakes of the same things that we partake of. He's made like us. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could identify with us and so that he could minister to us. He calls us brothers and sisters, God on our level. Brothers and sisters, I'm here for you. I mean, most of the religions of the world would, would call their subjects up to them, right? They wouldn't get down on their level. There's something that happens in my house that reminds me of this very often. It's usually around 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. I'm either on my couch watching TV, not wanting to be bothered, or I'm upstairs in my office doing something and not wanting to be bothered. 
I've just spent a couple hours getting my kids ready for bed, enjoying time with them, doing dinner, cleaning up the dishes, um, brushing teeth, helping them get on pajamas, read a story, pray with them, sing with them. We've given them time. My wife and I have given them time. We've given them attention. We've now tucked them into bed, and we are doing our own thing. And we hear a voice. Dad, 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 I need you. Ah, fine. So I come down the stairs. What's wrong, buddy? What's wrong, Judah? What's wrong, Avery? They tell me whatever's wrong. I convince them it's okay. I go back to my happy place. Dad, 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 I need you. Go down, ask them what's wrong, tell them what's wrong, or find out what's wrong, tell them everything's okay, go back to my happy place. Dad, 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 I need you. I think they said, Mom, Brittany, can you go get them? (laughs) One of us goes down, and, and most gods of the world would sit there as their people are calling out, and they would say, come on up to me. I mean, I could stay in my basement and say, Avery and Judah, get down here. Stop yelling. Get down here. And when they come down, I could have the stern face. You know you're supposed to be quiet. Now, get, be quiet and get back upstairs. And unfortunately, that probably happens every now and then. <laughs> or get up here to my office. I already tucked you in. We already talked. Get up here. They come running up. How dare you? Be quiet. Get back in bed. I'm trying to do something important like write a sermon here. (laughs) I could do that. And in my sin, sometimes I do that. But the picture of God in Jesus Christ is he leaves his place of comfort. He leaves a place that he should rightfully be in. I feel like I've earned my office or my couch because I've given them three hours. God earned his place in heaven. He didn't have to earn it. He created everything. That's, That's his spot. Jesus, that was his spot, but he left it when we were in need. He sought us out. He left it. He came down to our level. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 is showing us, that the Son of God, Jesus, became the Son of Man to seek and save the lost. He also suffers. This passage shows us that he suffers, and, and that makes sense because he walked among us and we suffer, right? There's so much suffering going on in the world and in our lives. And we have a God who embraced suffering, who walked a path of suffering, who can sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses and our suffering. The, the false gods of other religions, they don't do that. The gods of the world, whether it's entertainment or sex or money, they don't suffer with you. That's always trying to draw you to something better. It, it looks better on the surface, but we all know that money doesn't make things better. We all know that sex doesn't make things better. We all know that entertainment or vacation doesn't make things better. It may for a week, and then it's gone. So the false gods of the world, the false gods of religion, they don't suffer with us. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, He suffers with us. Look at this. Verse 9. Okay, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's that's suffering there. He left his glory on high, and so he sought us out, but he's also suffering because he's leaving his place of exalted glory to come and be among us. So he's made lower than the angels for a little while, namely Jesus. Again, that's the one who we're talking about here, Jesus, the Christ, the one of God. He's crowned with glory and honor, Because of the suffering of death. Do the gods of the world die? No. 
The God of the Bible does. Because he seeks us out and he comes to meet us at our worst. And he suffers in our place. Verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this isn't saying that Jesus wasn't perfect without suffering. Jesus was the perfect God-man. That's a mystery that we can't fully understand or comprehend. What this is saying is that Jesus became the perfect sacrifice for us. He lived a perfect life. He, he embraced the flesh and blood, and he suffered, and in that he became the perfect sacrificial lamb for our sins. And so God, in Jesus Christ, suffers. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came and lived life like us. He was tempted like us. He suffered like us. I don't know what you're suffering today. Maybe you're suffering family relationships. Jesus has been there. There was tension in his family over the person and work of who he was. Maybe you're su suffering rejection from family, friends, society. Jesus has been there. He was rejected. Maybe you're suffering, you're experiencing financial insecurity. Jesus was homeless for much of his life. He was born to a poor family in a small backwoods town, um, Nazareth. It's like Philadelphia. Can anything good come from there? <laughs> Who invited them to come here? Go back to Philly. That's where Jesus came from, and he suffered. He came and he suffered so that he could identify with us. Look at how it says it just a few um, chapters over. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows the suffering temptation of sin. When, when it feels like suffering, when you see something that you want and and you know in your spirit that it's not right to chase after it, and you feel the suffering of trying to live a life for God, Jesus knows that. He was tempted as you are tempted. He suffered so that he could empathize and sympathize with us. The God of the Bible, Yahweh, knows what you are going through. He knows how you are suffering. He is ever with us. He sought us out. He came to be with us. He suffered in the same ways that we're suffering. And he knows what we're going through. And he's present with us. Hear that, church. Know that, church. You are not alone. And Jesus knows what it feels like to feel alone. He said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ultimate loneliness Jesus, for a moment, experienced the worst suffering that we will never have to experience if we're in Christ. For if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we will never have to say, God, why have you forsaken me? We may think that, we may feel that, but it's never true of us. If Christ is in us and we are in Christ, we are never alone. Jesus actually was, though, for a moment. Because he had the weight and the guilt and the shame of sin placed upon him, which brings us to our next point. He's the only God who saves. 
I mean, he truly saves us. And so he tastes death for everyone. That's what verse 9 is saying. So he's suffering death. And by the grace of God, he tastes death for us. He saves us by going to that place of forsakenness so we don't have to go to that place of forsakenness. We will never, with our last breath, have to say, God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus said, God, why have you forsaken me? Because our sin was placed on him, as it says in verse 17, that he made propitiation for our sin. That means that he was the sacrifice, the atonement for our sin, and he reconciled us to God the Father. He stepped into that place so that you, so that I don't have to step into that place, so that we would never have to say, we're alone. God, where are you? You've forsaken me. You've turned your back on me. You've condemned me to hell. If we're in Christ, that's never true of us because we have been saved. Our God is the only God who saves, and he saves us through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who tasted death for all. And as verse 10 says, the one who brings us to glory. So he's saving us. He's saved us. He's saved us from the eternal punishment of sin, and he's bringing us glory. He delivers us from fear, as verse 15 says. What is Jesus saving us from? He's saving us from the the punishment, the penalty of our sin, propitiation, the word that's used in verse 17. He's saving us from God's wrath. We don't like to talk or think about that in the church. We want to talk about God's love. We want to talk about God's grace. We want to talk about God's mercy. We want to talk about God's forgiveness. And those are all great and incredible things. They exist though, because Jesus saves us from God's wrath. We wouldn't have to be saved if there wasn't judgment for our sin. And when we think about wrath, it's hard for us to grasp this. Many people don't like to use this term because we, we only know wrath in the way that we experience wrath. This is, um, it's like an emotional reaction to us, is it not? Usually our wrath is the result of somebody taking our comforts away. It's, it's, it's our response to somebody doing something that we wish they wouldn't do. It's when I'm sleeping, and uh, Brittany will tell you this, sometimes if I'm, if I'm stressed out and lacking sleep, um, I sleep very well. But if I fall asleep and I'm, I've been stressed, I've been missing out on sleep, and then some, for some reason Brittany has to wake me up, probably because I fell asleep on the couch, and she just, like a loving good wife, wants to encourage me to go to bed, um, there's been a couple times where she said, you're mean. That's my wrath. It's an emotional reaction. It's, it's you've, you've wrecked my comfort. I was fine where I was. Leave me alone, woman. I want to sleep. You're mean. That's my wrath. God's wrath isn't like that. God's wrath, wrath doesn't fly off the handle when he's cut off in traffic or when he's stressed out of it. He doesn't get stressed out of his mind. This is our wrath, right? We get stressed out of our mind and we snap at people. And, and, and our wrath is an emotional response to things and to people. God's wrath, though, I'm going to get it right. I wrote this down here. God's wrath is a, a steady opposition to evil. It's to evil. It's not because his own comforts are, or his own longings are being destroyed. It's that he created the world and all that exists in you and I as his children. And sin destroys his most beloved creation, you and me. And so God's wrath is steady opposition to things that harm us because he loves us. He's our dad. 
were his kids. Like a good dad, he loves his kids. And his wrath is against what hurts his kids. If you mess with my kids, you're going to experience my wrath more than Brittany does when she wakes me up on the couch. I can understand that as a dad. That's God's wrath. It's just steady opposition to evil. It's steady opposition to the things that destroy his kids. And justice means that this has to be paid for. This has to be dealt with. And so we're seeing in this passage here that God saves us from his steady opposition to evil by inserting his son Jesus to to pay the penalty to uphold God's justice. He inserts Jesus to deal with God's wrath. God's wrath is placed on Jesus Christ rather than on us. His steady opposition to evil. You can't can't have holiness and evil together. And so evil has to be dealt with somehow. Do we just wipe it away and say, eh, pretend like it never happened? That's not how you get to the bottom of anything by pretending it never happened. Let that be a reminder to all of us. We need to reconcile with one another. Don't sweep things under the rug. We don't want God sweeping our sin under the rug and saying, let's pretend that never happened. We want God reconciling our sin, dealing with our sin. And so Jesus is the propitiation. The the Greek word there used in verse 17 is hilakos, I don't speak Greek, hilakosoma, which means to reconcile, to propitiate. He reconciles us together. Our God saves us by bearing the guilt of our sin and our shame. Lastly, he sanctifies us. This is to set us apart, to make us holy. So he saves us, and then he also changes us. He transforms us. He makes us new. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's God and Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us who are in Christ, all have one origin. Mankind was created by God breathing the breath of life. So we exist because God has breathed the breath of life. Jesus came in flesh and blood. We live in flesh and blood. Jesus was this miraculous birth through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. We are of miraculous origin through dust with the breath of God breathed into it. We have the same origin. And so because of that, God can transform us and make us new. And Jesus is the new perfect human. He's restoring true humanity. And God can sanctify us and make us like we were intended to be, holy and righteous and pure in perfect communion with him and join him forever, like we're in the Garden of Eden. He helps the offspring. I couldn't put Abraham on there because it would have gotten too long and gone into the little arrow. Um, He helps the offspring of Abraham. Look at verse 16. That's us. It's, it's the Israelites, the Jewish people, Abraham's descendants, but the New Testament says now that Gentiles, who most of us are, non-Jewish people, are grafted in and we are helped by God. To sanctify, it's, it's to help us grow up. It's to transform us. It means that God is holy and other and perfect and we're we're not. We're not even here. We're keep going. And, and he's starting to grow us up into Christ-likeness so that we would become more and more like Jesus and look more and more like Jesus and live more and more like Jesus and think more and more like Jesus and respond to people more and more like Jesus. That his righteousness would be worked out in our lives. He comes to help 
us, his kids. Jesus, our big brother, is showing us how to live life. He's setting an example for us. says that he's not ashamed to call us brothers, verse 11. Verse 17, he was like us in every respect. Now this idea of sanctifying, same origin, we're brothers. We have the same father, we're brothers. Jesus, our big brother, is going before us saying, I'll show you how to live. And I'll also empower you to live that life because you can't do it on your own. I'll give you the example and I'll give you the power. And he sanctifies us by helping us when we're tempted. Jesus helps us in our temptation. This is the God that we serve. Jesus shows us that God, Yahweh, the one true God, is the only true God. He's the only one who seeks his subjects out, gets down on their level. He's the only one who understands suffering, who embraced the flesh that he would know what we go through on a day-to-day basis. He's the only one who gave up himself, standing in the place on our behalf, earning our salvation because we can't do it on our own. And he's the only one who truly transforms and sanctifies and makes us new. We're going to remember him now with a time of communion. And as we do, I want to just look at these two passages. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. We're going to do stations communion this morning, which means you can come forward. There's a station in the back or up here. We have crackers and cups. And so just come forward and receive the elements as you feel ready. And as you do, Think about this passage. God sought us out. He came and partook of the same things that we partake of, flesh and blood. He lived in the body. These elements represent his body and his blood. He partook of flesh so that he could identify with us, so that he could save us, so that he could redeem us. He partook of what we are made out of. And now we come and we partake as a remembrance of what he was made out of. He left his throne on high to partake of the same things that we partake of, that we could be saved. And that's what communion reminds us of and represents for us. And then look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. We'll talk about the outside the gate piece in a couple months when we get to Hebrews chapter 13. Just notice right now, Jesus suffered, okay? We talked about that. He suffered. He knows what we're going through. He suffered like us. He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify or to set apart or to make holy the people through his own blood. He suffered to set us apart, to make us holy to make us like him, to make us acceptable to God the Father. Our God is the only God who seeks us out, who suffers in our place, who saves us from eternal damnation, and who transforms us through his blood. I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come up, and the elements are here and back there. I just ask that you come down the center aisle when you're ready and um, partake of these elements. Remember, as you take them, Jesus partook of flesh and blood. And then as we partake of this meal, let it be a reminder that we serve a God who loves us. Romans says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a passionate God who seeks us out. Lord, we, we have in us as human beings created in your image this, this impulse to seek out a higher power. We see it all around the world with different religions and different spiritualities. We were created to worship and we seek out a higher power, but in Jesus, you met us, not even halfway. You came down to our lowest point and you sought us out. So Jesus, we thank you. I pray that this meal would be a reminder that you came and provided for us what we need in your son, Jesus the Christ. You sought us out. You suffered in our place. You saved us. And now you're sanctifying us. Pray that you would do your work in us, Lord Jesus, for your glory and our good. Amen.